Tonight, religion and politics. The Christians standing up for conservative values in the face of rising hostility and intolerance. The head of the Australian Christian lobby, Martin Isles, will be joining me shortly. I'm Nick Cater, the executive director of the Menzies Research Centre and the presenter of Battleground on ADH-TV, the home of smart conversation grounded in common sense. Battleground streams every Friday at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. It's available on demand 24 hours a day via the ADH-TV app, which you can download anytime on your smartphone or smart TV. Just go to your app store and find out more at www.adh.tv. You don't have to be a climate sceptic to conclude that the government's energy policy is bonkers. You just have to listen to the energy minister's own words. Last week, Chris Bowen outlined the challenge of meeting Labor's 2030 emissions reduction target. The aim is to reduce emissions by 43% compared to 2005 by 2030, which means he's just got seven years and 10 weeks to do it. Bowen said we'll need to install some 3,500 7 megawatt wind turbines, that's 40 a month, every month from now until 2030, each one as tall as the Sydney Harbour Bridge. At the same time, we'll need 22,500 watt solar panels to be installed every day for the next eight years. 60 million in all, or 2.4 for every man, woman and child in Australia. If you laid 60 million solar panels end to end, they stretch three times around the globe. All this supposes we can buy the things in the first place. Polysilicon wafers are in short supply and 95% come from China. Anybody with an ounce of common sense will tell you this can't be done. There's simply no way we can install three times as much renewable power in the next eight years as we have in the last 20. Jeff Dimery, the head of Alinta, has somewhat more experience in the energy game than Boeing. He said last week that we were on the course for an energy transition train wreck. Dimery told the Australian Financial Review, I personally don't believe we can achieve the transition based on what we're seeing to date. I think we're headed for failure. Australian Competition and Consumer Commission Chair Gina Cass-Gottlieb told the recent parliamentary committee household energy bills had risen by $300 since April. Dimery predicts that Emery costs will rise by at least 35 per cent more in 2023. Jim Chalmers, Albanese's treasurer, treasury, Albanese's treasurer, says energy is the most problematic aspect of our inflation problem over the course of the next six or nine months. Yet Bowen is refusing to budge. He told a conference in Sydney last week that, quote, getting more renewables in the system will mean lower power prices. I don't think that should be such a controversial statement in Australia in 2022. Well, it's more than controversial, Minister. The claim that variable renewable energy is cheaper contradicts all the available evidence. In every country that's gone down this path, the very opposite has occurred. Even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, energy prices had risen between 60% and 100% in Britain and Germany since renewable energy investment began in earnest at the start of the century. In Australia, Energy prices fell for 60 years until the start of the renewable industry. Now they're rising. Why? Because variable renewable energy can't be incorporated into the grid without expensive new infrastructure, like transmission, backup, power from hydrocarbons and storage. 
rooftop solar panels work just fine in the middle of a beautiful spring day. On Saturday, October the 8th, for example, rooftop solar was supplying 71% of Western Australia's electricity at 12.15pm. But between 6pm on Saturday and 6am on Sunday, rooftop solar was providing 0%. During that period, three quarters of the power supplied by coal and gas. According to Boeing's plan, we can fix this little glitch with batteries, which Boeing tells us are getting cheaper. The trouble is, they are not. The rush for electric vehicles has sent the price of lithium soaring. It's gone up by nearly 500% in a year. The cost of installing a Tesla Powerwall, for example, that's a domestic energy storage unit about the size of a fridge, the cost has risen from less than $10,000 in 2017 to about $19,000 today. None of this should surprise. Improved technology and manufacturing efficiency gains were only going to push battery prices down for so long. The International Energy Authority predicts that by 2040, demand for lithium will rise by 4,200%. Demand for graphite will rise by 2,500%. Demand for nickel will be up by 1,900% and copper by 700%. If nothing else destroys the illusion that renewable energy offers nothing but healing kindness to a broken planet, the rapacious hunger for minerals surely must. In an influential paper for the Manhattan Institute, Mark P. Mills predicts that the world's, meeting the world's transition goals will require dozens of new mines for each of a dozen classes of minerals, each on the scale of some of the biggest mines in the world today, and each requiring tens of billions of dollars in investment. The lessons of the recent decades make it clear that SWB technologies, that's solar, wind and batteries, cannot be surged in times of need and neither inherently clean nor even independent of hydrocarbons and are not cheap, Mills writes. Well, the bottom line is that Al the Albanese government's plans for cleaner, cheaper energy simply are not going to work. They're not going to be cleaner, cheaper, and they're not going to be reliable. However much the government may dislike coal, you simply cannot swap it out for variable renewable energy if you want to keep the lights on. Now that Australia's 2030 and 2050 emissions targets are locked into legislation, it's up to Boeing and Anthony Albanese to produce Plan B. Assuming, of course, they have one. Amanda Stoker joins me now from Brisbane for our regular catch-up. Amanda is a former Federal Assistant Attorney General and a Senator, and now a Distinguished Fellow at the Menzies Research Centre. Amanda, to uh, energy first, Chris Bowen's statement last week that we need to install 22,000 new solar panels every day for the next eight years to meet our legislated emissions reduction target is surely an admission that we're on the wrong track. I mean, don't you think at this point the minister should turn around to his staff and say, you've got to come up with a plan B? It really is proof that going into the last election, they were promising things that could not all be achieved. It's not possible to say we will have um, a rock solid commitment to renewables and say at the same time that it will be reliable and at the same time that it will be affordable. There's a tension between all of these considerations, which is why a balanced approach is needed. Labor has this pattern of promising conflicting things. And if you say it in a glib sentence, then people will just accept it. 
Here in Queensland, they've come up with something similar lately. It's the Climate and Jobs Plan. Well, let's be real here. There aren't an awful lot of people required in order to generate renewable energy mm. and climate and jobs are not partners. They are intention. Um, but they think if they just put it into a nice slogan, um, people will simply accept it when it doesn't add up. Yeah, and I don't think people are that stupid. I mean, you, you, if you are basically a, a tradesman, you're running a one or one and a half person business, you know that if you go out and invest in, say, you know, a new ute or, you know, new piece of equipment, you've got to take a fact, into account the fact you've got to pay that back and the cost of that will be added to whatever you have to charge your customers. I mean, that's just natural. But the figures around this renewable energy transition, as they call it, are so rubbery. It's, uh, you know, they're almost bouncing off the sheet. You've got, according to AEMO, the best figures I saw somebody calculate from the AEMO figures uh, recently that it could cost the best part of a trillion dollars uh, to get to where we want to get to by 2050 by this route. Yet with all that investment going into the system, all the investment we see right now going into the system, is it, does it make any logic at all to say that our energy bills are going to get cheaper, as Chris Bowen says? Look, I don't think that it does. Those people who try and say that renewable energy is the cheapest energy available are taking a one-moment-in-time analysis when the sun's super bright and the wind is super strong, but for all of the rest of the time, it leads to really a lot higher energy prices. Um, and once you factor it in, in terms of that more global approach, it just doesn't add up. You've only got to look to the international experience. Um, Germany and many other European countries have suffered through energy shortages due to their inability to rely on gas at the moment. Um, the Spanish have been told to turn up their air conditioners so that in the summertime, they're not actually getting cool. And the Brits have been told to prepare for $10,000 um, energy bills. That's where this path takes us. Um, and if we don't want to get that as the outcome we face as a nation, then we've got to be a bit more creative. We've got to be willing to say, um, are we willing to accept that Australia's coal, which is the cleanest in the world, still has a place in the energy mix? Are we prepared to be much more serious about nuclear energy? And are we prepared to be a little less blinkered about the ways that um, progress towards an overall cleaner environment can be achieved? Well, I'm sure we'll be returning to this in good time, Amanda, even if we have to do it by candlelight the way we're going. But anyway, in your <laughs> column, in your column in the Australian Financial Review this week, you picked up on the discussion about judicial impartiality. That's been the subject of a recent report by the Australian Law Reform Commission. The, the principle is, of course, that courts must not only be fair, they must be seen to be fair, because if people want to retain their confidence in the law, they have to see the law as impartial. Attorney-General Mark Dreyfus is proposing that judges should be selected by an independent panel rather than by the parliament to ensure that they remain, they remain independent. Now, some people might buy that logic, uh, but I don't think you do. Why not? Well, it sounds good in practice. People will say that independence equals transparency. But if we look at the details, that just doesn't wash. When you take away the ability to select judges from accountable politicians, 
who, if you're not happy with the job they do, you have the chance to vote accordingly and give them the punt at the next election and instead give it to a panel of bureaucrats who are never held accountable for what they do but who all carry with them political beliefs and allegiances and values that are never made plain to the people who are potentially up for selection or to the wider Australian community, you're not actually getting more transparency. You're getting less. You don't know the criteria or the values that are being applied by the people who are selecting, and you can't hold them accountable if you don't like what they do. I find it really interesting that the Australian Law Reform Commission's report into judicial impartiality and judicial bias, which I might note, mostly contained recommendations to the courts and to judges about how to improve their practice in a way that was generally quite constructive, was seized upon by Labor Attorney General Mark Dreyfus as a chance to sort of stick the booty in over coalition um, processes around judicial appointments. But there was nothing unusual about the way the coalition went about doing this. The method used was exactly the method that this democracy has used for all of its existence. And in being transparent about looking for particular um, judicial methodologies and principles of judicial decision making in a person before you appoint them, that's really just making sure that you're getting for Australians a judicial methodology that is going to do the right thing by the law for Australians. That's not interference. That's not anything inappropriate. That's actually doing the job of a minister properly in an accountable way and in a way that best serves the interests of Australians. Well, I couldn't agree more. I mean, giving, making Parliament the only authority that can uh, affect, you know, deal with the, the appointment of judges is, is it's a it's a principle that goes back more than three centuries. It's a, the principle that no right. judge can be removed except by the will of both houses of Parliament. It began with the Act of Settlement in 1781 and ensured that judges could not be interfered with by the King, the Prime Minister or anybody else, any independent committee of bureaucrats, for example. It freed judges to fearlessly and impartially declare the law of the land. Why would we want to mess with such a principle? Am I just being a, an old conservative again? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with old conservatives, Nick, but I think what's happened here is that there have been some controversial decisions delivered by judges at various levels, whether we think about some of the environmental activism we've seen from judges like Justice Bromberg in the federal court, or some of the more controversial decisions that we've seen out of the High Court in recent years. There has been public discussion and in some quarters criticism of what you and I call judicial activism, the, the times when judges dip into making political decisions and making law rather than simply applying the law that's already on the books. When they're criticised for that, I think that gets a few people a little uncomfortable. And it's important that we draw a distinction here. Judicial tenure, judicial independence doesn't mean immunity from criticism. It doesn't mean you can never be um, scrutinised for making a decision that has adverse implications for our community. What it means is that you have the protection of the institution of tenure 
That means you can't be removed from doing that job because you've made a controversial decision. There is a world of difference and it's important that those on the bench understand that the enormous privileges they have don't also mean they can never be criticised. Yeah, look, I think there's some very practical steps we can take to ensure that, you know, there's no perception that, that, that judges are acting according to their own prejudice rather than the law. You remember that last year the Australian Law Reform Commission asked for submissions into their inquiry on judicial bias. Menzies Research Centre obliged with some research we conducted where we looked for statistical evidence of apprehended bias in decisions made in the federal court on matters of industrial law. But could have equally applied in the field of environmental law. And we found it. We found that one judge, for example, had found in favour of the unions in 11, oh, sorry, in 10 out of the 11 matters that came before him. Now, strangely, and we've never worked this out, the ALRC refused to publish our submission on the grounds that it was defamatory, which it most certainly was not. But and the notoriety bestowed on the report was great. It drove huge traffic to our website, made it the best read, read report we've ever published for at least five years. But while the Commission didn't publish our submission, it clearly looked at it favourably. And one of the ALRC's recommendations, recommendation 30, 13, is that the Commonwealth Courts should develop a policy on the creation, development and use of statistical analysis of judicial decision-making. That's just what we said. And I think it's a very sensible proposal, but maybe I'm showing my own bias. Uh, what do you think, Amanda? Look, it shows the importance of letting the numbers tell their story. When we scrutinise the work of judges in the way that, let's face it, all of us face scrutiny in the work that we do. We're held to certain standards that we need to meet. We can see patterns that can either provide opportunities for professional development or um, changes in approach to make sure that Australians are getting a fair go from the courts. Can I also, in a little bit of a um, uh, a bit of a plug here, say it highlights the importance of the work done by the Menzies Research Centre, because in this recommendation we see the manifestation of really sensible, evidence-based work being adopted by the Law Reform Commission of this land um, so often the recommendations that need to be made are searching for concrete evidence on which to hang their hat. The great work of the Menzies Research Institute really did back up, it seems, that recommendation. Yeah, you know our motto here, in God we trust, everybody else bring data. Um, uh, finally, Amanda, <laughs> Amanda, very quickly to the freedom of religion before I'm joined by Martin Isles from the Australian Christian Lobby. Uh, the recent case of Andrew Thorburn, who was handed out, hounded out of his job disgracefully, I thought, as chief executive of the Essendon Football Club, essentially because of his Christian mm. faith. Surely that demands that Parliament revisits the religious discrimination legislation that uh, failed towards the end of the Morrison, Morrison government. Nobody should be discriminating against simply for what they think or believe, should they? I mean, that's fundamental to our sense of a, a, a liberal democracy. It's fundamental to our democracy. It's also a fundamental human right. We are not free human beings if we are not able to associate freely, speak freely and believe and think what we want to think. Those are in, in, um, in whole what it means to be human. And if that's not assured in Australia, then we really should be quite troubled about what our future looks like. It cannot be the case that beliefs of a religious nature 
that were utterly orthodox until, let's say, a decade ago, including being endorsed by, say, former Prime Minister Julia Gillard, are now cause for not just um, excluding people from their ability to speak freely in their private lives, but punting them from their job for finding out that they have a, a traditional religious belief. It is deeply troubling. And to see um, Dan Andrews and other political leaders jump from being observers of this to instead joining a pile-on over, again, what are quite orthodox beliefs means they are shifting from just failing to protect people's religious beliefs into the space of actually perpetrating the discrimination. Um, and I think that is something we should always be disturbed about when we see it emanating from those who represent us. Thanks, Amanda. We'll talk again soon. That was Amanda Stoker. Thanks. As Amanda Stoker, Distinguished Fellow at the Menzies Research Centre. And if you'd like to follow Amanda's writing, or mine for that matter, you'll find links to almost everything on the Menzies Research Centre's website, menziesrc.org. You'll also find links to ADH TV. Plus, you can sign up and join the thousands of Australians who subscribe to our regular newsletter, The Water Cooler, delivered straight to your inbox every Saturday morning for free. Just go to menziesrc.org. Well, a few weeks back on Battleground, I was joined by Dr Stephen Chavora to discuss whether Australians are becoming less religious. Our discussion was prompted by the release of data from the 2021 census that shows that Christians, or at least those who claim an affiliation to the Christian church, are now in a minority. Now, some people judge from that that Christianity and perhaps religion in general are on the way out. Personally, I think that's a very rash conclusion, and I'm quite sure that my next guest will agree with me on that. Martin Isles is a lawyer, commentator, and the managing director of the Australian Christian Lobby, one of the largest political movements in the country. His mission is to promote truth through public debate in the public square, through people-powered campaigns, parliamentary lobbying, and mainstream and alternative media. Martin produces a very popular vlog called The Truth of It, and he's appeared frequently in the mainstream media, including on the ABC, on Q&A where he plays the role of Daniel in The Lion's Den. I've been impressed with Martin's intellect and his gift for explaining complex issues in clear terms, but most of all for his courage in proclaiming the values and truths of the Christian gospel in a frequently hostile world. Martin, welcome to your very first appearance on ADH TV, not your last, I sure. Uh, make yourself right at home. I thought we might begin by reflecting or getting your thoughts on the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and uh, the accession to the throne of her son, Charles III. Uh, for many of us, I think we hoped this moment would never come. Uh, but within a week of learning of her death, you know, here we are. I was at a solemn requiem mass last night for the first time in my life singing God Save the King. And it was a very moving moment. Here's my take out. You can argue with me if you like, but I reckon in a constitutional monarchy like ours, the deal is that we get to choose the government, but choosing the sovereign is above our pay grade. In fact, it's not unreasonable to come to the conclusion that the sovereign's chosen by God. Your thoughts? 
Well, um, I think I largely agree with you, Nick. And in fact, I possibly agree with you more now than I did a couple of weeks ago. Because <laughs> mm. the death of the Queen has been bittersweet. Uh, you know, I hoped this day would never come because of my enormous respect uh, for Her Majesty and the kind of person that she was. I think especially her life of duty is such a a shining beacon to us all in an age where we are just all wanting our rights, we all want our due, we're all black holes of sucking in all that we can get. Uh, and it's a rights culture. It's a self culture. Uh, it's a me time and an all about me culture. And there's a woman who at the age of 21 pledged her solemn duty to her people. And she kept that promise all of her life. And I think she's this shining beacon to remind us of something we've forgotten in the West, which is duties are better than rights and, and, and sacrifice is better than self. And that's the meaningful life. And that's the life well lived. So I'm sorry to lose her. However, I suppose the way in which we have lost her and the way in which the monarchy in its typical unruffled, steady, stable uh, uh, way has simply soldiered on, Charles became king automatically, all things remain as they were. We've almost got this, again, a beacon of solidarity and steadfastness in an age of uh, turmoil, in an age of politicking, uh, in an age where people have lost faith in those that they've elected in power. And suddenly we realise, actually, here's something that's a bit different, that's above all of that, and maybe it's worth keeping. Right away, Martin, we're right into a conversation of the kind that you won't hear on mainstream media, one that actually countenances the existence of God and that from that certain other principles flow, including values and principles are, are central to what you talk about. Now, at the Menzies Research Centre, we've we recently published a book, which you, you know, God and Menzies, which traces the origins of liberal beliefs, liberal uh, political beliefs as espoused by Robert Menzies in in Christianity, and there's a very clear link there. Uh, things like love thy neighbour as thyself, for instance, you know, everyone is equal before God. These translate into very strong liberal principles. I thought we produced that book that we might get a fairly small take up amongst, you know, liberal party people. But in fact, it's, it has been huge. And I put that down to the fact that uh, while people may not actually feel particularly the absence of a Christian faith or the absence of God in their lives, they do feel very strongly, particularly in politics nowadays, the absence of values. And that's what you present. That's what you're able to present. Uh, is that your experience? Yeah, I think that there is a, uh, you know, values is one way to put it. Another way to put it is to say an absence of something solid. Uh, some foundation, something that you can build your house on and say, you know what, uh, this is true, this is right, this is the foundation, here are the moorings for life and for the way we think and for the way we do politics and the way we do philosophy and the way we live. Um, people are looking for that solid foundation. Um, I think the Queen was somebody who uh, definitely had that solid foundation and she made that very, very clear, surprisingly clear for a monarch uh, in many of her public addresses. And I think something of that showed up in her life and that's part of the reason she has such extraordinary respect, despite being uh, a, 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 a figure of, of, of power. Uh, and most figures of power don't have that respect in our day. I think her faith made a difference. And 
I think a lot of people are sort of wondering what we've lost uh, in the days of chaos and uncertainty. And one place where I find this most pronounced is uh, among younger people. Uh, we do a lot of work with younger people, programs with younger people, and they've sort of grown up on this diet of postmodernism, which says there's no author to all things. There's no way in which the universe coheres together with, in, in a sensible fashion. It's just all about you and, and following your dreams. And there's no up and there's no down and there's no left and there's no right and there's no right and there's no wrong. And it's just, a, you know, you do you, you be you, you live for yourself. You find, and, and they're sitting there going, hang on, oh, this is distressing. I don't have a solid foundation. I don't know what is up and down. Someone tell me. And there is a hunger emerging in younger people. And I think also to a slightly lesser extent, but to a real extent in older people to say, what are the solid foundations that we can actually uh, stake our lives on? Uh, where is the guidance for how to live in a time of confusion? I definitely am seeing that and I'm seeing it everywhere. And I think that the success of what we're doing is just one testament to that. You're offering actually a little bit of hope for the rest of us here. I mean, we look at the education system, we look at the, 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 the decline in, in solid teaching of, of civics, of principles, of our history indeed, and, uh, and, and the arrival of all sorts of um, poorly based uh, subjects like the teaching of climate change and so forth, and we go, that's it, there's no hope, right? But what you're telling me, if I read you right, is that children that have gone through that experience uh, and perhaps in their, their young adult lives actually feel that loss and are actively seeking out some more solid foundation. Is that right? Yeah, not all of them, Nick, but uh, a surprising number of them have actually gone through that and have found it wanting. Uh, and we are seeing the fruits of that. I mean, we are we are seeing hundreds of young people every year applying for our programs. And when they come along, we talk to them about truth, <laughs> you know, a word that's been made very dirty over recent decades. Uh, we talk to them about uh, what is right and what is wrong. And we talk to them about, uh, you know, solid principles for living one's life. And it's like, uh, you know, it, 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 they, they get so high off of it. They're so excited to find something solid. They're so excited to find a system of belief, a narrative, a foundation. Uh, and so I'm here to say, yeah, there is a really solid number of young people who have come through uh, a wokeified education system, an education system that has uh, deliberately evacuated itself of so much of what is true and right, uh, and um, and has followed after you know uh, the postmodern way of thinking, uh, and they've gone through that and they've come out the other side, and there's a deep sense, whether some of them can articulate it or not, that they're missing something. There's a deep sense that they are almost, they're almost psychologically unsure, uncertain and anxious and looking for something good and something right. And yeah, that is definitely a phenomenon. Well, something that the ACL has championed and indeed established is, is the Lachlan Macquarie Institute. Uh, now, not many people I think outside of your circles or ours have heard of this, but in terms of, of, of changing young lives, of taking young people, of giving them a deeper purpose in life, in preparation for going into some form of public life, whether it's politics or even business or, or anything, that has made an enormous difference, hasn't it? Tell me about the Lockton Macquarie Institute, what it's done, what it, what it aimed to do and, and what, it, what it has achieved so far. 
Yeah, it's a good question, uh, Nick. And we have two programs, one called the Download for 18 to 25-year-olds just going into work and university. And then we've got the Lachlan Macquarie Internship for those who are probably uh, usually postgraduate, but looking to go into something more specific like uh, politics, public life, law, policy, etc. Um, and in both of those areas, we see an awful lot of fruit. The one for the younger people tends to generate uh, a lot of people who uh, become extremely active uh, in the in, in their faith and in the political world and people who are, are much more uh, excited about going out and doing things and making a difference and volunteering and signing up to parties and all that kind of stuff. With LMI, the Lachlan Macquarie Internship, we get a more specialised kind of outcome. Uh, and the Lachlan Macquarie Internship is now a separate organisation, although we call ourselves sister organisations, and we offer an enormous amount of support to them. And as a result of that longer program, uh, we are seeing people go from there. Uh, and there's a platform in that. They go into political staffing roles. They even go uh, into political roles, overtly political roles. Uh, they go into think tanks. They go into all these sorts of areas of influence around the country. And um, we're finding great success through that. We're finding demand for it, um, especially the one for the younger folks. Is, is, uh, there's a wait list on that a mile long. Um, and we're also finding fruit from it. In other words, people are looking for uh, a foundation so that they can then have confidence in some kind of purpose, confidence in some kind of uh, uh, meaning for their life uh, that they can go and pursue. And, and that's happening. And so a lot of fruit from that, actually. And it's, it's exciting to see. Well, it's, it's huge fruit, Martin, because, you know, as you say, I mean, I know a number of Lockton Macquarie Institute graduates in prominent positions um, in politics and related fields. And, and what it seems they do going into that in, you know, sometimes quite brutal and uh, uncivilised environment of politics, as it's played out certainly in Canberra, is actually bring something different. They come at it with, with, with some solid values and principles from which they start based in faith. And that means that in, you know, the kind of conversations that take place perhaps in ministers' offices or around tables on issue X or Y, they may be the ones who say, but have you thought about this? And we all know how in a, that can change the conversation. This is really, I think, you know, living out uh, in, in reality, the idea of, you know, letting your light shine as, as you talk about it in the gospel. It has a big influence. Oh, and you actually took the words right out of my mouth, Nick. I was going to say, well, you know, it, it reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount, salt, light, right? Uh, and, you know, a grain of salt sitting in its environment, it has a preserving effect. It makes a difference, right? Uh, and it is through those little acts. It's through those little uh, points of influence that we have or or indeed a light. You know, you put a light in a dark place and it, it, it shines and it dispels darkness. Uh, and that's the idea here. You, you send people out uh, as sort of little light bulbs and little, you know, packets of salt into their various uh, nooks and crannies of politics and public life and, uh, uh, you know, the thought centres of the nation. Uh, and they have a role there and they have an effect there and an influence there. Um, you know, we realise that this is really, this is a long-term effort. Uh, you know, society's changed. Um, the West uh, and Australia included uh, really has changed culturally in a very big way in the last 20-odd years, or at least many of those changes that had already happened have sort of become apparent. Um, and we find ourselves now in a world that is really, really affected by woke thinking. Uh, we find ourselves in a world that is really... Um, are committed to casting off some of the good things from our past, like those Christian roots, uh, and like so many of what was offered that was good from, we talked about the monarchy, right, from the British Empire for all of its negatives and faults. 
boy, it measures up pretty well compared to some others. And there was good things there, but we're intent on casting it all off. Mm. Um, and we live in a world like that. And the thing here is that, no, we're not going to be able to flip a switch and through some magic, you know, wand waving, fix all of this overnight. But there is a long-term effort here. And that's why we train these people. That's why we send these people out and we watch them make a difference slowly, but surely and effectively. Uh, and that's also why we have the grassroots movement to have the volunteers to go out and do their work uh, slowly and surely over time to reach people like the salt and light metaphor. Now, I described you in the introduction, I was described the ACL as a political force, as, as indeed it is. Well, let's be clear about what kind of political force it is. You are, you are a, you're non-partisan, as you should be. No doubt there are ACL members who voted probably for every party in the last election, as it should be. That, that's, not, that's not a matter that, that you dictate or decide. But it seemed to me that you are naturally affinitied, you'd have a natural affinity with the conservative side of politics. I mean, what you've just said, preserving institutions, holding on to what is good and building on that, these are, these are fundamentally conservative or, in Australian terms, liberal uh, positions. Is that fair to say that you would naturally align yourselves much more comfortably uh, with a, a, a liberal government that, that, that was truly aligned to those values uh, than, say, you know, the Green Party or the Teals? Well, sure. I mean, uh, we're social conservatives. There's no doubt about that if you're talking in sort of current political categories. Uh, and when you have social conservatism, you really tend to have uh, people who tend to be on the more conservative side of the political spectrum. Um, although there was a lot of people in the Labor Party who were social conservatives for a very long time. Uh, and it's really a recent innovation that uh, a number of those have left and that the Labor Party's changed a little bit. But we still enjoy very good relationships within Labor nonetheless. And that is because we are nonpartisan in the way we act. Uh, we call out uh, bad ideas wherever we find them. And we proved that in the last federal election where we campaigned against some of the Liberal MPs who voted against religious freedom and Christian schools. We were prepared to do that because we're trying to hold people accountable to good and right principles uh, and principles that are good and right for everybody. And so we'll call it out wherever we find it. And our supporters are also prepared to do that. I mean, we raised a lot of money for that campaign. We had to turn off the fundraiser. People were very prepared to get involved and even hold the conservative side of politics to account. Uh, really what we like to think is that from an outsider's perspective, from a third party campaign vehicle perspective, what we're able to do is to hold both sides, both major parties accountable to some good social conservative values. Um, and of course, we tend to find more people who naturally align that way uh, in the Liberal Party, although it's certainly not uh, universal these days. Uh, however, we find that through our grassroots strength and through the campaigns that we're able to run, there is a pragmatic reason now for a lot of politicians to listen to us in ways that they didn't used to. So I always said from the very beginning of building this movement, I said the reason we need this grassroots activism, we need these people-powered campaigns, is we need to give politicians a pragmatic reason to open the door. <laughs> we need to give politicians a pragmatic reason to talk to us rather than just a values-based reason. Because if it's just that, then we're never going to win in a, in a pragmatic political environment, which is what we're in now. So we will hold both sides to account, but there's no doubt that the values we espouse would be considered socially conservative these days. I will just add this. 
I do think, however, we're a bit different to some conservatives in that I think we do have a positive vision for things as well. Uh, we're not just criticising what's emerging. We actually do have a cohesive ideology, if I can put it that way, or a cohesive philosophy of how things ought to be. Mm. Uh, and so we do spend a lot of time teaching constructive things, not just critical things. So the coalition's defeat, it was a very bad one. The Liberal Party primary vote, the National Party primary vote's lowest ever. We know all that. Uh, but there's been a lot of focus, it seems to me, on the votes or the support they, they lost, if you like, to the left. I mean, we're talking about largely the Teal candidates. Some votes lost to Labour, a few to the Greens uh, in places like Brisbane. We've talked a lot about that, but it seems to be much less talked about. In time, indeed, probably almost entirely ignored in the mainstream are the votes they lost at the Conservative end which your movement was was quite a significant player, right? You said you were campaigning against Liberal uh, MPs, sitting Liberal MPs in key seats. And I think there's evidence that you made a difference in those seats. Would you agree with that? Well, uh, I agree with it. And in fact, I know it because we did the polling. So we, we surveyed the seats before our campaign and we surveyed the seats after our campaign. And we know without a shadow of a doubt that we made, that without the difference we made, some of those MPs might not have lost their seats. So there was five whose record we wanted to highlight and we wanted to highlight their record no, name, as no, effectively name voting names. against. Same names, Martin. Who were those five? <laughs> okay, well... Fine. There's, uh, there's, there's, there's Katie Allen, uh, there's uh, uh, Fiona Martin, uh, Bridget Archer, uh, Dave Sharma, uh, Trent Zimmerman. Uh, so those are five people whose voting record in the parliament just didn't stack up with what the prime minister, with what their own party said they believed in. Freedom, religious freedom, uh, the rights of associational freedoms, you know, Christian schools able to be Christian, for example. Uh, that's the diversity of a society that a liberal vision is supposed to encompass. Um, uh, but they didn't vote for that. They voted against it. Uh, and so we found ourselves in a situation where we had to hold them to account for causing that key election promise to faith communities to fail. Um, and so we campaigned in those seats. We highlighted their record. Uh, and four of those five lost their seat. Uh, the one that hung on was Bridget Archer, but I note she got a very, very, very tiny swing towards her compared to the neighbouring electorates of Braddon and Lyons, which are demographically similar, where you saw a 5% plus swing to the coalition. So I think we made a, a pretty big dent in her situation there uh, in Bath nonetheless. Uh, and uh, we saw them lose their seats and the fanfare from the mainstream media was, oh, it's the Teals. Oh, it's climate change. Oh, well, you know, this is this means the Liberal Party needs to go after climate change. Well, we did the polling and we know from the polls that we did in those seats that our campaign directly influenced more votes than it took for those MPs to lose those seats. Yeah. So that's true in Trent Zimmerman's seat, Dave Sharma's seat, Fiona Martin's seat, at least, where our campaign made a decisive difference. I'm conflicted here. Let me put my conflict right on the table. You're talking about five MPs who are friends of mine, uh, including one uh, who my, was my local member who I voted for. Uh, so I feel some sympathy for them. But on the other hand, you're a friend of mine. I regard many people in the ACL as very good friends of mine, Jim Wallace and, and others of that ilk. So I'm torn here. But look, I get why you did it. I, at the very least, I understand what, why you did it. And I think the moment of realisation for me on this 
was back in 2019. You can correct me on the date. Everything pre-COVID seems a long time away. But the, if you remember, there was a vote in the New South Wales Parliament on measures to uh, liberalise abortion that, uh, you know, had not come out of nowhere. Uh, you know, the Berejiklian Liberal government had introduced uh, these measures straight after an election. Nobody's quite sure why she was doing it. And I was passing by Martin Place while this debate was going on, and Martin Place was full to the gills with people protesting against this legislation. And when I looked around and I talked to people, there were people I knew, they were your people, they were my people, they were friends of mine, protesting against a Liberal government decision on a matter of fundamental, what is to many of us, a fundamental principle, and that is the sanctity of life and, and the right of human beings to take a life. I felt it, they felt it, but somehow this hadn't got through to the politicians in Macquarie Street who were making that decision. That's exactly right. And I'll tell you just how much it didn't get through. It was after that event. I mean, there was a huge rally in Martin Place. There was an even bigger one in Hyde Park a couple of weeks later. It was extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, but uh, it was after that event that we were talking to the Prime Minister's office in Canberra. Uh, and uh, we were talking about the religious discrimination bill. And they removed something which was just so fundamental. Uh, and I think it was the fallout clause, and they just said, oh, we can't do this. You know, I thought, wow, a Liberal government basically saying you can't have free speech in the workplace. They wouldn't pass laws to protect free speech in the workplace. They had to remove it from the bill. And I, I got a little bit cranky, and I said, well, you know, you know, you, you can't do this to your base. You you can't take your people for granted to this extent that you won't even stick up for something that has been so near and dear to them for the last couple of years. Year. And I remember the person I was speaking to, who I won't name, just turned to me and shot out, who else are you going to vote for? And I thought it was actually then that the penny dropped. And I thought, OK, so long as this is the attitude that we can do whatever we want, we can go sort of we can we can dabble with the left. We can do all this sort of stuff because you're going to be taken for granted. Your vote is guaranteed. I thought, oh, well, we can't be in that situation. Hence why I told our supporters we've got to hold them accountable even though we might ordinarily wish to see them win. And it's important to note, too, we didn't make the difference between the government winning or losing. Uh, they lost you know, enough seats that uh, our campaign didn't make the decisive difference. Uh, however, um, we did hold them accountable, and I think that was right. Uh, and there has been a marked change on both sides of politics towards us. I mean, you mentioned the mainstream media not necessarily elevating this in the conversation, but I can tell you now, in political circles, this is very well known. Uh, and uh, doors on the Labor side are much more open to us, and doors on the Liberal side are much more open to us. We already did pretty well in that regard, but we're doing even better. And that's because all of a sudden they go, well, hang on, uh, we can't just take people for granted. And I think that there is a massive problem on the conservative side of politics at the moment where they're trying to dance with the left in order to win votes from the left. And I'm sitting there going, why would someone with lefty views vote for a fake when they could vote for the real article? <laughs> they can just vote for Daniel Andrews in Victoria. He's the real thing. Why would they vote <laughs> for the fake version of Daniel Andrews on the other side? Of course they won't. There needs to be a distinction and a difference. And we've proven that the base will walk away and will do great and it'll do great harm to the cause uh, when the conservative side of politics doesn't remain true to their values. 
Martin, we're, we're out of time. I think everybody would agree with one thing, and that is uh, that politicians need to be held to account. You do a very good job of that. So regardless of where people sit, regardless of what their faith is, whether they have a faith or none, we need to support what you're doing for that reason. So thank you very much for joining me on Battleground. We should get you back again. We've only just begun this conversation, but thanks for joining us again. Now to your emails, and there's been a big reaction to my comments on Labour's renewable energy obsession. John writes, no account has been taken on replacement costs of rusted out rooftop solar panels and wind turbines in 30 years' time. Well, it's worse than that, John. The advertised lifespan of solar panels is 20 years and turbines 25, but many people say they don't even last as long as that. Terry writes, Chris Bowen is the Don Quixote of our time. With his lance in his hand, Bowen chases his illusion of zero climate change on a trusty political steed in the vain hope of rescuing the fair maiden Dulcimer from the ogre of climate change. Well, from the Spanish novelist Miguel de Cervantes to Samuel Taylor Coleridge's epic poem of the rhyme of the ancient mariner, Joe writes, Chris Bowen, the albatross around the Albanese government's neck. We should be grateful to him for demonstrating how misled we have been about renewable energy and the supposed benefits of a transition to fossil fuel, a fossil fuel, a fossil fuel free economy. Bit of a tongue twister there. Uh, meanwhile, Peter predicts this crusade is going to come to a very painful end and very shortly. Nothing focuses the mind more than severe pain in, hip po in the hip pocket. Do we want food, shelter and affordable energy or do we want to save the planet? The answer will be delivered in 2025. Rod turns to some engineering home truths. I wonder if Bowen knows or cares that under the base of every one of these useless windmills is a gigantic block of reinforced concrete weighing between 800 and 1,000 tonnes to hold the things upright in the ground. No doubt they'll be left until China takes over and it'll be their problem. And Catherine writes, we have two wind farm developments planning to surround our town, Cooler, New South Wales, with 370 wind turbines of 250 metres high. Turbines of this size require an enormous land clearing. This involves the removal of native vegetation and critically endangered ecological communities. Where are the real environmentalists? And the last word goes to Norm, who writes, 47 megawatt wind turbines every month from now until 2030, more than 22 solar panels every day for the next eight years. This is absolutely nuts. Thanks, Norm. Succinctly put, keep your emails coming. Nick Cater at ADH.TV. That's Nick Cater at ADH.TV. Thanks to my guests, Amanda Stoker and Martin Isles, and the miracle workers here at ADH-TV. And most of all, thanks to you for watching. See you next week.